Welcome everybody to week four of the power of small. Now, for those of you who are maybe new or you've been out for several weeks, for the last month, we've been exploring together as a church just how important the little things are in our lives. Because most of us assume that it's the big things that are the most important and most impactful in our lives. But what we've been discovering is that it is actually the little things if done consistently and strategically over long periods of time that actually end up making the biggest difference in our lives. And I I think that's kind of what Jesus was talking about when he spoke these words from Luke chapter 16. Because Jesus says, if you are faithful in the little things, you'll be faithful in the large ones. But if you are not faithful, if you are dishonest in the little things, you won't be faithful with greater responsibilities. And so for the last month, we've explored the power of small. We've seen the power of small in the early church in Jerusalem, how this small group of people, because of their willingness to connect an authentic community with one another and to follow Jesus in small steps of faith, were able to transform not only the entire city of Jerusalem, but eventually the entire known world. And then two weeks ago, we we saw the power of small in the life of a guy named Gideon, who although he was the smallest son in the smallest family in the smallest tribe of the nation of Israel, because he was willing to take small steps of faith, God would turn him into a mighty warrior. He would rescue the entire nation of Israel. Israel and become a national hero. And then, of course, last week we saw the power of small when, when Jesus took a, a small lunch from a small boy and worked through some small-minded followers to pull off one of his biggest miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. And so today I want us to look at the power of small in a very practical area of our lives, and that is our finances. Probably fewer areas of our life are more affected by small things done consistently over long periods of time than in the area of our finances. Small amounts put in a savings account over long periods of time grow to a huge nest egg. Small payments made on big debt over time eventually bring that debt down. But I want to talk specifically about what I think is the most important small thing when it comes to our finances, and that is generosity. If I had to sum up everything the Bible teaches and talks about when it comes to finances, the heart of it is generosity. That a little bit of generosity can go a long way in the kingdom of God. A little bit of generosity can not only improve the lives of people around you, but it can actually improve your life. In fact, notice what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25. It says, the generous will what? What's that word? Right, the generous will prosper. And then notice this. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Now, how can that be true? How does that work? I mean, I get it that being generous, refreshing others is helpful for them, but how does it help me to be generous? 
One of the things it does is reduce the amount of stress I have in my finances. One of the most stressful things in our lives are our money and finances, right? And it doesn't matter whether you have a little or a lot. It's stressful either way. If you, if you don't have much, you're always stressed about needing more to get what you have. If you have a lot of money, you have to be stressed about trying to hold on to it and not lose it in the market or a bad investment. Money is stressful, and especially these days as inflation drives prices higher and higher and, and wages are staying down, we're wondering, how are we going to afford to live? In fact, finances affects almost every area of our lives. Financial stress impacts our relationships. 70% of divorcing couples list money or money issues as one of the leading causes of their divorce. Financial stress affects our physical health and our emotional health because we're thinking about it, we're worrying about it, and it affects our lives. Let, let me say it this way. Money's not the most important thing in life, but it affects the most important things in our lives. And so if you want a little more financial peace in your life, if, if you'd like to have a little less financial stress in your life, it's not going to come from a bigger paycheck but it will come from being just a little more generous. And so today I want to spend some time talking about what does it look like to become more generous? How do we become more generous people? And to help us do that, we're going to look at a little known story about a little old lady whose small act of generosity not only made a big difference in her life, but it made a big difference in the kingdom of God. This particular story is found in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17. Now, I know to find 1 Kings, you might have to use your table of contents, right? Because this is not a book we read or teach from first. But I can tell you exactly where the book of 1 Kings is. You ready? Here's a hint. It's right before the book of 2 Kings. So there you go, free tip to help you find it. But as you're turning there, uh, this may be a little known story from the Bible, but it involves a well-known person in the Bible, a man by the name of Elijah. And Elijah was what was known as a prophet of God, which literally means that he spoke the word of God to the people of God. God, because at this point in their history, the nation of Israel did not have the written word of God. They didn't have the Torah, the first five books. They, they didn't have scrolls to read on, and so they got God's word because it was spoken to them by the prophet, and that's what Elijah was. Actually, the nation of Israel was led by sort of a two-man senior leadership team. There was sort of this two-man leadership there was first the king, and the king was the political and military leader of the nation. And then you had the prophet who was the spiritual leader of the nation. And when the king and the prophet worked well together, did what they were supposed to do, the nation of Israel prospered and grew. But if the prophet and the king did not work well together, things went bad. 
Now, the king that Elijah was supposed to be working with was a guy by the name of Ahab. And in my opinion, Ahab was not only the worst king the nation of Israel ever had, he might have been the worst leader in all of human history. This guy was a punk. He was a self-centered, self-obsessed leader. This guy would make Putin look like a choir boy. He was just a bad dude. And so because of that, the nation of Israel drifted away from God, and God decided that it was time to lovingly discipline his children to call them back to him. And so he told Elijah, Elijah, go to King Ahab and say, because of your disobedience, there's going to be a drought in the land. Not a temporary drought, but a huge drought that's going to last for a long period of time. In fact, not only is it not going to rain, there's not even going to be any dew on the ground. That's how dry, how bad it's going to be. And it's not going to rain, Elijah, until you say it's going to rain. So Elijah obeys God. He goes to the palace, knocks on the king's office doors like King Ahab. God wanted me to tell you there's going to be a drought in the land. It's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And Ahab's like, yeah, get out of here, weird prophet dude. I got time for that. I got stuff, important stuff to do. And so Ahab, or Elijah leaves the palace and God says, dude, you got to get out of Dodge because it's going to get bad really bad. Not only is there going to be a drought, but that drought's going to cause a famine, and everybody's going to know that you're the one who can make it rain again by saying it, so people are going to be pressuring you after you. You got to go, Joe. And so God leads Elijah out into the wilderness to this desert to a little oasis, one little spot where there's a brook, there's a stream that runs through it. And God says, Elijah, just stay right here by the brook. You can drink water from the brook, and I'm going to have the ravens bring you food every day. You don't even have to get up off the ground. I mean, think about that, right? Ravens stopping by Taco Bell, picking up some burritos and dropping them off. That's like DoorDash with feathers. And sure enough, remarkably, that's exactly what happened. Somewhere around two years, Elijah stays there, drinks from the brook, is fed by the ravens, but eventually the brook dries up, right? There's a drought going on. So eventually the brook goes dry and God says, all right, Elijah, it's time to get up and go. And that's where we pick up this story and discover some practical principles to becoming a little more generous. Three things. One, to become more generous, I have to realize that anyone can be generous. Anyone can be generous generous. See, most of us, when we think about generous givers, we think about people with a lot of money, got extra, they write the big checks to charitable causes, you know, they're on Facebook showing this, you know, $50,000 or $250,000 donation, and that's what we think when we think of generous people. But generosity is not about the size of your wallet. Generosity is about the condition of your heart. It's just a willingness to be used by God to accomplish God's work in the world around you. And so you have to understand, that's what Elijah represented. He represented the work of God in his time, his season. Like in the way that God works through his church now, to accomplish his work and his will, he works through the church. At this point in history, he worked through whoever his chosen prophet was for that season or that generation. So Elijah represents God's work and notice who God chooses to help accomplish his work. 
verses 8 and 9. It says, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. And then check this out. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. Circle the word widow. Why is that significant? Because in that culture, a widow would have been the poorest, most marginalized, most dependent person in the community. Right, widows were not allowed to work and make money to take care of their family. They were dependent on others. They were dependent on the generosity of their community. People had to give to them for them to even get by and have what they need. So it doesn't really make sense that God would say, Elijah, I've got a widow who's going to take care of you. In fact, that probably to Elijah would have been more strange than being fed by ravens. Right, That this widow who has nothing is who's going to take care of you. What would have made sense is, is if God had said, go to Zarephath, because I got a sugar daddy who lives there. He's got cash on cash, stacks on stacks. He's got a big house. He's got a place to stay. He's got plenty of money. He'll be able to meet all your needs. But God says, no, I've got a widow. You know what that tells me? That God can use anybody who's willing to be a generous giver. Listen, if, if God can use birds and a penniless widow, I'm pretty sure he can use your generosity to make a difference. Because it doesn't have to do with the size of your bank account, but it has everything to do with your desire to be generous. And you know what? I, I think that's good news for some of us here today. Because I think some of us, when we think about this idea of being financially generous, of God being able to use us to, to give generously, to move his kingdom forward, to, to grow his church, to make a difference, we always feel a little left out. We're like, you know, thank God for the rich people, but I can't really be a part of that. Well, if that's you, if you've ever felt like your little gifts couldn't make a difference or, or your generosity doesn't really change anything, I want you to be encouraged today because anybody can be generous. I think that's why the gospels include that story about the widow's might. You remember that? Where Jesus and his disciples are hanging out in the temple courts and they're, Jesus is kind of watching people going in, but they're dropping their gifts, their financial gifts into the big box and, and a couple of big fat cat donors go by and they're dropping the big 50K checks in there. And Jesus yawns and says, ho-hum. But then a widow comes by and she drops two coins, the smallest currency in that time. She drops those two little pennies in the box. And no sooner do those pennies hit the bottom of the box that Jesus jumps up and tells his disciples, that's what I'm looking at. That's what generosity looks like. That's what grows the kingdom of God. My point is this, you don't have to wait till you have your finances in order in order to be generous. Now look, obviously it helps to have your finances in order. We are to honor God with the way we manage his money that he's blessed us with. But you don't have to wait till you got all your finances in order. You can be generous right now. 
And one of the reasons we're offering these financial peace seminars, these three-part seminars starting next week, we're offering them at all of our campuses because we want to help you manage money God's way. We want to reduce some of the stress that's jacking up your relationship. We want to help you sleep a little better at night, to worry a little less every time you pay bills. And so we're just going to teach practical principles to managing money God's way. We're going to teach you how you can actually pay off debt quicker and more effectively. We're going to teach you how you can build an emergency fund, a a savings account. We're going to teach you how to budget so that you can know where your money's going instead of wondering where it went every month. And so, yes, you need to have a good financial plan. And if you're not signed up for that, I would encourage you. There's a little place on the little tear-off card. You can sign up for it. You can look at it on our app, on our website. It's everywhere. And if that's a need for you, and I bet it's a need for most of us, I would encourage you to sign up for that. But don't wait. You don't have to wait to be generous till you've completed that, until you got your life's better. In God's eyes, $5 and $50,000 are the same if they're given with the right heart, the right attitude. Now, for those of you who are in a good place financially, you're not left out either. Throughout the Bible, we see examples of God using wealthy people to move his work forward. Solomon, wealthiest man ever lived in the Old Testament, God used him. Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man in the New Testament who not only helped take Jesus' body off the cross, but provided the tomb for his body to be laid in. Listen, the Bible says the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro, looking for people not who have good bank accounts, He's looking for people whose hearts are stayed on him. That's really the amazing thing about these 30 years, almost 30 years of Cedar Creek Church's history. All that God has done in and through this church, all that he's done in our community and even around the world of thousands of lives being touched and moved and grown in the kingdom of God. This work has not been supported by a handful of fat cat big donor givers. It's been by thousands of people who have had their lives changed and have chosen to be generous with whatever they have. That's why at Cedar Creek, it's not about equal gifts. It's just about an equal sacrifice, a willingness to be generous. Becoming more generous doesn't start with your financial condition. It starts with the desire in your heart. But it doesn't end there. Generosity is not about good intentions. Generosity is about taking action. And that's why the second thing I have to do to be a little more generous is I have to prioritize God's work. I have to prioritize God's work to put the work of God ahead of my own desires and sometimes ahead of my own needs. Let's jump back in the story. So Elijah gets up, he makes the long walk across the hot desert, he gets to the village of Zarephath, and eventually he finds this widow that's supposed to take care of him, and she's out gathering up some sticks to go home and build a cooking fire, and Elijah, he doesn't just show up and bulldoze her and say, hey, God said you're supposed to take care of me, I'm going to move in and eat your food, right, I'm going to live with you. No, he slow plays it. He says, excuse me, ma'am, would it be too much to ask if I could just get a 
drink of water. Could you just bring me a jar of water? I made this long, hot trip. And the widow's like, sure. And so she turns and she heads to her house to get a jar of water. And as she's walking away, Elijah says, oh, yeah, and by the way, can I get a little bread too? Like, ladies, your man ever do this to you? Like, honey, can you fix me something to drink? Sure, and you get up and you're heading to the kitchen. As soon as you get in there, it's like, and can you make me a sandwich too, right? That's kind of what Elijah does here. But I want you to notice her answer, verse 12. She says, I don't have any bread. I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little bit of olive oil in a jug. In fact, I'm gathering a few sticks to take home to make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. What's she saying? I'm a really bad cook. You don't want none of my bread. It might kill you. No. She's saying, sir, we're helpless. We are hopeless. We don't have anything. We've got just enough to make one little biscuit, and that's all we got. We're going to eat it, and we have no hope. The, the people who normally support me, there's a famine on. They're having to take care of themselves. We've got nothing and no prospects of ever having anything. She's saying, we're hopeless, sir. Some of us today feel hopeless. Maybe you feel hopeless about your financial situation. You, you look at the, the dead and you think there's no way we're ever going to get out from under this. Or maybe you look at your current job and there's no chance to move up and the bills just keep piling up and you're feeling hopeless. Or maybe the hopelessness you feel has nothing to do with your finances and everything to do with the people that you love. Maybe you're looking at your marriage and you're thinking it's hopeless. We got no chance. Or, or maybe you're looking at that prodigal son or daughter and you're feeling hopeless that they're ever going to turn and change. Whatever you're feeling hopeless about, I want you to listen to what Elijah says the cure is. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Pause right there for a second. Look back up here. Two things Elijah tells her. One, don't be afraid. The cure for hopelessness is not fear. And then the second thing he says is, it's okay to take care of you and your son. It's okay to take care of your son. I'm not trying to take food out of your mouth. I'm not trying to cause you and your son to not have anything. It's okay to take care of your own needs. In fact, the Bible says, he who doesn't care for his own family is worse than a non-believer. If you don't take care of the needs of the people you're supposed to take care of, that's not God-honoring. But also understand, when we talk about generosity, we're not talking about sacrificing yourself and your family on the altar of accomplishing God's work. I think some of us have that idea. Like if I were to, be, if I were to really trust God with my finances, he's going to take everything I have and just leave me empty and broke and exhausted. That's how you think God is. And I have a hard time understanding that view of a God who's only ever wanted to take from us our sin, our shame, our guilt, and our purposeless existence. God doesn't want to take all that you have and, and leave you to die. My point is the two biggest barriers to generosity are fear and a misunderstanding of God. Fear that I won't have what I need to get by 
and misunderstanding the heart and generosity of God. And so if we're going to be more generous, we've got to push past those barriers and notice the rest of the verse. Here's the key, Elijah said. Again, back to verse 13. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But what? What's that word? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. But what? You're not loud enough. But first, 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 first. For those of you who lack the gift of discernment, I am emphasizing the word first. Before you go home, first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your Son. You see the order there? Now remember, she's got enough flour and oil to make how many biscuits? One, right? That's all she's got. And Elijah is saying, bring me that one biscuit. You see what Elijah's doing? He's not asking for her biscuit. He's asking her to trust God. To trust that somehow, if she will... Trust God enough to give him first, then some way God's going to make sure there is enough for her and her son. Don't miss this, because this is what generosity requires. Trusting God enough to put him first, even if you can't see how you're going to have what you need. Jesus put it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if you'll do that, all these other things, all these needs, all these, all these things you're running after and stressing out, Jesus said, they'll all be there. They'll be taken care of. See, the, the key to financial peace, the key to having a little less financial stress is not just a better financial plan. It's a willingness to trust God. In fact, that's really what giving to the church is all about, right? When, when you give regularly and consistently a percentage of your income, when you give that to the church, it's not about the church being able to keep the lights on. It's not about everybody paying their fair share like we're supposed to do with taxes, which ain't ever going to happen, but that's another message. But it's not about making sure the church pays the bills. The reason we call you to give to the church and the work of the church is because it is an expression of trust. It's an act of worship to give, to trust God to give first, not after you paid all your bills and done all the things you want to do and, you know, if there's a little bit of money left over. That's why back in January when I was teaching on what we as a church believe about giving, I, I talked about the fact that we believe in giving first, right, the first fruits because it's about trusting God to meet the needs. And then finally, when you realize that God can use you, whatever your financial situation and when you trust him enough to prioritize his work, his kingdom, then and only then will this third thing happen. And that is that you will start to recognize God's generosity. See, too often we want to experience God's generosity in our lives without being willing to be generous in the lives of others. And that's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. But 
If I'll trust God enough to put him first, then I'll start to see and experience his generosities in ways I could have never imagined. Two things happen when this widow is willing to give her one and only biscuit to Elijah. One, God met her and her son's needs and Elijah's needs. Notice verse 15 and 16. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the container. It's like Olive Garden, never-ending breadsticks, right? They just kept showing up. In fact, it's kind of like what we saw last week. Do you remember with the, the little kids' lunch, the little five hush puppies and the two sardines? Somehow when they kept breaking it, it just kept growing and it never ran out. And that's what happened with her flour and her olive oil. God just made it show up. He met her basic needs, but he didn't stop there. Then God overflowed his generosity, right? In the same way that God not only fed the 15,000 like we saw last week, but there was an abundance left over, God's generosity shows up in this widow's wife life as well. Because at some point, while Elijah is still living there, her son gets sick and dies. Sadly, not an uncommon event at this point in history. The, the, the general population mortality rate was high and the child mortality rate was even higher. It just happened, it happened to a lot of people that they would lose a child. People just learned to live with it. But this was all this widow had. She'd lost a husband. She only had this one child. That was all she had. And so Elijah takes the boy, his limp body, from his mother's arms he goes into another room and he prays and he cries out and says, God, this woman has been generous to your kingdom. She's been faithful and obedient. Lord, don't cause her to lose this son. And notice what happens, verse 22. It says, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life was returned to him and he lived. That's what God's generosity does. It doesn't just meet your basic needs. It restores your life, the real life that you were created for. I have to be honest with you. This part of the story, it's a hard part of the story for me personally. Having lost a son and spent many nights begging God to save my son, to restore his life I wonder, God, I've tried to be generous. I've spent most of my adult life trying to serve you. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm, I'm at least as worthy as this widow. I've tried to trust you. Where's my miracle? Where's my son's life restored? And, and through those tears, through those unbelievably difficult and painful nights, God has showed up and he has reminded me that because of his generosity in giving his one and only son, Jesus, I can know that my son has never been more alive than he is right now. And it doesn't make the pain go away, and it doesn't always make me want to say hallelujah, but it gives me enough energy and breath and hope to take one more step, to serve him for one 
more day. Now, please hear my heart. I am not trying to put some sort of cute spiritual spin on my pain or on your pain. I'm just saying this. The more I choose to trust God when life doesn't make sense, the more I keep choosing to put him first, even when I can't see his moving, when I do that, the more of his generosity I see and experience day by day. And I can just tell you, church family, that's what I need to keep going. And I'm pretty sure that's what you need to keep going. And it comes from a willingness to be just a little more generous with what God has given you. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I thank you that this is not some made-up story, some ancient fairy tale. These are real people in a real town. This is a real woman. All of this actually happened. It's not some story about a magic pot of flour and a jar of olive oil. It's about your abundance and your love and your generosity. And Jesus, I need that. I need you. Thank you for your generosity in sending your son so that we have hope beyond the grave. Thank you for your generous promise to meet all our needs according to your riches and glory because I need that. And so do these people that I love. And so God, thank you for reminding us today that the path to experiencing your generosity is trusting you enough to be a little more generous tomorrow than we were today. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need you. Move and work among your people so that light can be shined in the darkness and that hope can be brought to the hopeless because there's too much of both right here in our families, in our neighborhood, in our nation, and in this world. Move, Jesus. Move among your people right now. To your name that we pray. Amen.